Hello. How are you tonight? Ready? Jesus didn't come back for us. The bridegroom has not come, so here we are. Getting prepared, right? So 50 miles southwest of Paris, located in a small village, a 12th century Gothic cathedral dominates the skyline. Notre Dame de Chartres is filled with stained glass windows so prized that upon the news of the Nazi invasion into France during World War II, its parishioners hurriedly removed the windows, hiding them for the duration of the war. The majority of the original stained glass windows did survive, including multiple windows illustrating Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. The spectacular scenes located on the south wall of the cathedral's nave, nave illustrate Jesus telling the parable to the lawyer. You can see a few of them here. The robbers, the victim, the priest, and the Levites passing by, an innkeeper. But the spectacular illustrations also contain speculative allegorizing. Above the parable is the story of Adam and Eve. You can see it on the one on the right, way up from top. Intending for us to see Jesus' parable as symbolic of creation, fall, and salvation. The man going down from Jerusalem is to be seen as leaving paradise. Symbolic of the children of Adam on their way through a dangerous world. The thieves represent temptation, robbing us of eternal life. The priests and the Levite are symbolic of the Old Testament's inability to heal us. Help comes from the Samaritan embodying Christ. The inn symbolizes the church, the innkeepers, the apostles. The promised return of the Samaritan is intended to symbolize the second coming of Jesus Christ. Fascinating. Such were medieval interpretations of Jesus' parable. And though they do describe what is true of the overarching uh, story of God's word, it is not the primary point of the parable. Though fascinating, the danger is that being lost in symbolism, we focus on the big picture and we find ourselves removed from Jesus' intent to make the parable painfully personal. We find it easy to neglect the lawyer to whom Jesus tells his parable. We find it easy to not identify with him as Jesus intends. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan, his parable, is set within the life story of an expert in God's law, making it a complicated parable. On the surface, it looks like Jesus is pulling two things together, dealing with two different issues, the lawyer's question about eternal life, about salvation, and then the parable, the kind of love that pleases God. Jesus shows how both are intertwined. Will you stand with me to read Luke 10, 25 to 37? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the freedom in which we get to open it tonight. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to respond to Jesus' voice calling us, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So again, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is set within the life story of a lawyer asking about the kingdom of God that we might set the parable within our life story and see what it is we know of the kingdom of God. Making it painfully personal, we are intended to see ourselves in light of Jesus' point. In the words of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, we are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is rather meant to control us. I believe this is Jesus' point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. We are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is rather meant to control us. So to see how being a Christian and the kind of love that pleases God are intertwined, we want to first look at how, like this lawyer, we seek to control our Christianity. Then see that true Christianity is that which moves us from controlling our Christianity to a Christianity that controls us. So again, we're going to first look at how we, like this lawyer, seek to control our Christianity, then see how that true Christianity is that which moves us from controlling our Christianity to our Christianity controlling us. Okay, so controlling our Christianity. Jesus' parable, as you studied this week and just heard me read, is given to one who sees love as something he can define. He sees love as a project. And behold, a lawyer, an expert in the law, stood up, the law of God, stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in Jesus' culture, to stand up was a sign of respect, a sign of great respect for a visiting teacher. But the expert of the law stands up to test Jesus, not to show him respect. He stands up to accuse Jesus. Immediately, we see his hypocrisy. Though wrongly motivated, this expert in God's law asks the most critical question we can ask. He expresses a desire to be part of God's promised kingdom and admits there must be a requirement. Jesus asks him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Engaging the expert in God's law, Jesus now tests him to commit him to the conversation. The lawyer answers by giving two commandments that summarize the Ten Commandments and all of the laws that came out of the Ten Commandments that we find in the first books of the Bible. Jesus' own answer 
is, is similar to what the lawyer gave. It is the right answer. Jesus' answer to another man's question found in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 40. And when another one said to Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he's got the right answer. Yet, if he really loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength, he would be humble, he would be sincere, he would certainly would not have tested Jesus and been hypocritical and disrespectful. And loving his neighbor, this expert in the law would not have wanted Jesus to trap him in the way that he was seeking to trap Jesus. And here, sisters, we are being tested to personally and painfully recognize the kind of love that God requires if we are to inherit eternal life, if we are to be part of his kingdom. We are to have a love for him that is above all else. See, loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength is the commandment under every other commandment. If we loved God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength, we would not be arrogant. We would not be bitter. We would not be jealous. We would not be greedy. We would not be self-absorbed. Loving God is the commandment we always break when we break any other commandment. In fact, it's the commandment we break first before we break any commandment against one another. This is what makes sin so ugly and evil. All sin is first and foremost against God. If I gossip about you, or if, on the other extreme, I commit adultery against my husband Jeff, the persons most offended are not you, and they're not even Jeff. The one most offended is a holy God. This is why the prodigal son, as we learned a few weeks back with Pamela, when he repented and was turning to go back towards home and was rehearsing what he would say to his earthly father, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven, a word used for God. I have sinned against heaven and before you. See, we think of ourselves as sinning against people. We sin against God and before others. This is why David in Psalm 51, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, getting her husband killed, lying, putting other people into danger, in Psalm 51, David says, it against you and you alone, I have sinned, God. We had sinned against everybody. And yet he says in Psalm 51, because that is what makes sin so ugly and evil. All sin is first and foremost against God. You have answered correctly, Jesus says. Here we see Jesus' love for the lawyer, giving him an opportunity to be humbled, to be sincere, to admit his failure, to say, I can't do that. Jesus says, do this and you will live saying to this expert in God's law that to enter God's kingdom, he must have a love he does not own. He must have a love that owns him instead. Painfully personal. Do I have a love I do not own? Do I love in a way that that love owns me instead of me owning it? It defines me rather than I define it. This has been a brutal week, and I'm going to share the love. <laughs> to love my neighbor as myself 
is to be as happy for another as I would be for myself. This means when a good friend gets married before me and I have longed to be married much longer than her, I am happy for her as if it were me. This means when a coworker gets a promotion I thought I deserved, I am as happy for her as I would be for me. This means that when I was infertile and a friend announced she was having her fourth baby, I would be as happy for her as, it, as if it were me. This means when the parent that I have longed to be close to is closer to my sibling, I am as happy for that sibling as if it were me. Do I need to keep going? Sinclair Ferguson writes, the opposite of love is not hate, but self-love. Love is not a project. Love is not something we do. Love is something we become. An out-of-control lover of God that reveals his love to others. Our hearts, this side of the fall, on that Jericho Road, see everything in light of us. From the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep and every moment in between, we effortlessly and joyfully love ourselves with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. We don't need to teach that. And even if we self-loathe, guess what? We're still loving ourselves more than anyone else because guess who we're thinking about all of the time? This takes us back to the lawyer. He is not about to admit he is condemned. No, he will justify himself. He will not allow the conversation to get out of control. Will we? To move from controlling our Christianity to our Christianity controlling us, we will first need to recognize how out of our control Christianity is intended to be. We will need to see, recognize how out of our control true Christianity is. The religious expert wants a discussion on the project of love. He says, you know, Jesus, let's just be reasonable. Who's my neighbor? He was given far more. Love's purpose. Love's purpose is to evidence God's love. Seeking again to keep control, he says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? This was an important question in Jesus' day, but Jesus answers in the most unexpected way. He answers in the way that says, you don't get to decide, Mr. Expert, in the law of God. The priest and the Levite illustrated what Jesus knew to be the lawyer's idea of love, that love is a project. Jesus describes a scene all too common and terribly dangerous. The 17-mile Jericho road from Jerusalem to Jericho was treacherous. It drops 2,000 feet in elevation in 17 miles. There are cliffs, there are caves, there are crags. To be robbed is not to be pickpocketed like Michelle was with our faraway sisters. That was quick, and she was not harmed. To be be robbed in Jesus' day on the road to Jericho was like a terrorist attack. It was as if a roadside bomb goes off in your face. Stripped, beaten, left for dead. The religious expert would have had compassion for the beaten man Jesus is describing, yet Jesus knew this lawyer would have no problem with the priest and Levite's actions. 
The religious expert, this lawyer, would have thought it justifiable and wise that they crossed to the other side. The priest and the Levite would be applauded for not getting their important hands dirty, helping someone who may not be their own. They don't know. He's stripped, after all. It would be wrong for them to risk being harmed by nearby robbers or to be defiled if this beaten man was dead. These men are important and they are needed elsewhere. Also added to this is the tension in Jesus' day between the priesthood and the everyday peasants. There was a tension. They weren't the same. They didn't intermix. The hero the lawyer expected was a peasant Jew. One like the beaten man. One of his own should be helping him. One of his neighbors. Jesus chooses a Samaritan to illustrate the love that inherits the kingdom. He intentionally pushes in on a 750-year racial hatred. Dating back to when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, resulting in intermarriage. An unthinkable sin that created a hated mixed race called Samaritans. They were excluded from the temple worship in Jerusalem, and they fought back by building their own temple and creating their own worship, adding fuel to the hatred's fire. No one was more hated on religious, racial, economic, and even political grounds than Samaritans, and the hatred went both ways. They were not just objects of hate for one another. They repulsed one another. The closest we can get, and we can't even really get close, is as if a mega pastor is walking by, his associate then walks by, and then a Muslim cleric is the one who walks over and takes care of the beaten Jew. Or to put it in the context of World War II, a former Nazi helping a beaten Jew. Although the lawyer would have believed the beaten man needed help, he would have thought both the Samaritan and the beaten man act unjustifiably wrong. Both would have outraged this religious expert. The Samaritan had an excuse to pass by, but more importantly, the beaten man, presumably a Jew, had a responsibility to refuse help, no matter the cost. The Samaritan displays inexcusable compassion, and the robbed man is unforgivable for accepting it. The Samaritan interrupts his own journey. He risks his safety, his reputation. He expends time, energy, money. He risks retaliation of the wounded man's family. He takes great risk in taking this man to an inn, presumably a Jewish town. He violates the law he also follows regarding defilement. And he gives not only immediate but long-term compassion. Had the Samaritan not promised to cover whatever expenses the innkeeper incurred, this beaten man would have had to sell himself into slavery to pay off his debt. Remember, he's beaten, he's stripped, he has nothing. What the innkeeper would have incurred by keeping him until he got better, this man would have been in debt and had to sell himself or his family into slavery to pay off his debts. How dare the left-for-dead man allow a Samaritan to meet not only his physical needs, but his emotional, psychological, and spiritual needs? How dare he allow himself to be indebted to a Samaritan? 
Ladies, we can't miss this. The Samaritan is not simply a child of God in Jesus' parable, but he is the agent of God. He is not limited to an interpretation of God's law. The Samaritan fulfills the spirit of God's law, love that evidences God's heart. See, when God created Adam, it was to enter into a love relationship. And we know that Adam and Eve rebelled against that love. But God did not say, that's it, you people. He called out a man for himself named Abraham. He called out a people for himself. He intended the experience and express his love through obedience to God's law. By Jesus' day, the Jews had reduced God's law into a love they could control. To justify or feel good about themselves, they defined for themselves who they would love and who they would hate. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 says, you have heard that it is said, because this is what the religious leaders taught wrongly, not in God's word, Old Testament. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. See, the purpose of love is to evidence God's and that is what the Samaritan did. And the beaten man, he should have died before receiving it. He should have died before receiving help from his enemy. And this is another picture of -of out-of-control Christianity. See, this is another part that has just wrecked me this week. In the parable, we find God speaks to us about love through our enemies as much, if not more, than our friends. This parable is not just commanding and empowering us to love our enemies, but to let an enemy who is moved by compassion love us. See, loving our enemies is a command that we can take pride in. If I love my enemy, if I pray for him or her, I can say, I'm doing good. I love my enemy. I just prayed for him. But to receive mercy to receive psychological, spiritual, social, physical aid from an enemy who is now moved with compassion towards me, that obliterates my pride. I don't know about you. That would test the sincerity of what I believe to my core. I was reminded of many, many years ago when I was painfully and personally betrayed by a friend slandering my faith and my sincerity sincerity to others. By God's grace, I was able to forgive her, knowing I am capable of far worse. And what I mean by forgiving her is that I let go of the need to see her pay for what she did. I wasn't, forgiveness doesn't mean it was okay what she did, and forgiveness didn't mean I trusted her, but it did mean I let go of the need to see her get paid back for what she did took her off my hook and I put her on God's hook. Yet I realized through this parable that for a very long time, though she had changed towards me, though she genuinely had a true compassion from the Lord, I refused to let her show it to me when I was in need. I wasn't going to lose that control. And I found myself asking myself this week, what does it look like to learn about love from an enemy? First, I realized that facing her slander 
and asking the God who let it come to me, what I needed to pick up is one way to let an enemy love me. You know, what she said wasn't true, but in everything that's said about us that isn't true, sometimes there's a grain, right? If God moved her to compassion, I could learn about love by receiving mercy from her. This kindness between enemies is not human. It is of another kingdom. As Richard Longenecker writes, God's world is a world where forgiveness in the broadest sense of the word is central. And the question I ask myself and I ask you as my sisters is, are we proclaiming this new world, his kingdom love, or are we denying it? in both how we treat our enemies and what we let our enemies, former enemies, how they treat us. See, it's not just about being a neighbor, but the parable is about enemies becoming neighbors. Jesus intentionally puts the lawyer in the ditch and asks, which proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Jesus brings the lawyer back to his original question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He brings the two together. The lawyer cannot even say the word Samaritan, and that is the point. He would have to let an enemy be his neighbor if he was ever to become one. He would have to let an enemy be his neighbor if he was ever to become one. Jesus moves the lawyer from his idea of love as a project to love's purpose to reveal the nature of God. Only this kind of love inherits eternal life. Sisters, unless we receive the out-of-control love of our king, we cannot enter his eternal kingdom that has come in the sending of his son, Jesus. Mercy implies misery. Did this expert in the law of God see his own misery? We don't know. As in most of Jesus' parables, it's a cliffhanger. But do we see ours? To enter the kingdom, we must allow first our greatest enemy to show his mercy, and that is the Lord God. By nature, our love for ourselves Loving ourselves with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength makes God an enemy who wants to come against that and transform that. Romans 5, 8, and 10, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Without the power of God's love, we miss love's purpose altogether. And the power of love is displayed in Jesus's out of control love for God. And so his out of control love for you and me, who is Jesus's neighbor? The woman who readily admits she is beaten, she is broken down spiritually, psychologically, spiritually, physically, and left for dead. And as promised in Ezekiel and fulfilled in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is the one who came to seek the lost, to bring back the strayed. He says, I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. 
the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Amen. And how did Jesus prove to be a neighbor to you and me who have fallen among robbers? He absorbed our death on the cross. He was forsaken by God as we should have been to give those who trust in him his eternal inheritance. Loving God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, Jesus was moved by compassion to love us more than himself. And when we get this is when we are finally free from the slavery of loving ourselves more than God. Jesus was moved by compassion to love us more than he loved himself. And when we get this, when this presses into the deepest parts of our soul, that is when we are finally freed from the slavery of loving ourselves more than God. It's a process, but that's how it begins. D.A. Carson writes, the ultimate good Samaritan who comes to broken people condemned to death and binds up their wounds and saves their lives and frees them forever from slavery because he pays it all is Jesus. Hallelujah. But this is not Jesus's point when he tells the parable. But I think it's Luke's. Because Luke sets the parable in the context of Luke 9:51, Jesus setting himself to Jerusalem to die. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up to go to the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. As Luke reflects on Jesus' parable, by the writing of the Holy Spirit, he likely sees Jesus as the one who comes along, binds our wounds, gives us shelter, pays with his life to free us from the threat of slavery. He gives us life eternal life that begins now. And although Jesus is the ultimate Samaritan, that is not the point of his parable. If we stay there, we can remove ourselves from Jesus's intent, making the parable painfully personal. The law says, do this and live. Jesus says, I have done this so you can live. I have risen to give you a life in my spirit that enables you to have a real love towards God and others, to bring my kingdom into this one, to call this kingdom into question. And although it will be incomplete until he returns, sisters, you and I bring his kingdom through healing relationships that roll back the curse, that reverse the fall. This is what Jesus meant when he wrote, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And when Paul wrote, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, it's not a project, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. No, we are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is rather meant to control us. Because of the fall, you and I aren't in paradise. I probably don't have to tell you that. We are journeying on this Jericho road 
and we are all in need of mercy, whether we recognize it or not. We are all in need psychologically, socially, physically, spiritually. And we are healed as our love is transferred to God, as we, by process, come under his kingship. Laws will never change your heart. They will never change mine. But coming into a relationship with the God who is love is revolutionary. Only then can we go and do likewise. See, guilt, that'll motivate you for a day or two. Only grace creates real change. And I don't know about you, but so many times I've heard the teaching of the Good Samaritan and I've walked away and felt guilt. And I can attest, again, guilt has a very short shelf life. But grace transforms us from the inside out. Only grace creates real change. We need the life of Jesus to empower us. And to the extent we allow his infinite mercy to get a hold of us, no one will be beyond our showing mercy or receiving it. In the words of John, 1 John 4:19, written by the Spirit, we love because he first loved us. Our neighbor, when we let God love us, our neighbor will no longer be an object we define, but a relationship we enter into. A relationship that reverses the fall as it calls this world's kingdom into question by evidencing the mercy of God's kingdom here and now. So, together, on life's journey, on this Jericho Road, sister to sister, how will we personally respond to the opportunity we have each day, even tonight in our small groups, to go and do what has been done for us? Sisters, behold... The kingdom of God is among you right now. Father, as we continue to gather in your name, around your word, as part of your kingdom, may we behold. May we behold. You are God. Father, would you, by your grace, press into our hearts one bit further the infinite mercy that we have been given through your son that by grace we might transfer our love of self to our love of you and begin to go and do likewise in your son's name we pray